0: Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, June 6th, 2022. This year, we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro,
1: and today we're going to be covering our first cartilaginous fish of the year. It's June, so it's Ocean Month. We're going to be taking a little bit of a journey these next couple of weeks talking about marine fishes. And we actually got our very first batoid fish on the show today. And, we, you know, we wanted to go big, so we're doing big skates. And we're actually also getting back up into Alaska for the first time this year. So let's go.
0: We're really pleased to have Thomas Ferugia with us. Tom did his PhD on big and long nose skates in the Gulf of Alaska. And now he's with the Alaska Ocean Observing System. Welcome.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so skates, rays, we know they're different, but what are some of the easy things to remember in terms of how to tell if you're looking at a skate or a ray?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. There's Actually, both skates and rays are very closely related to sharks. A lot of times we call them flat sharks as opposed to round sharks, but they are uh, cartilaginous fish. And actually, English is one of the few languages that has even two words. A lot of them we'll just call the equivalent of what ray is in lots of different languages for both skates and rays. And there is actually, it's not, just, it's not just a language distinction. There is a biological distinction between the two in a lot of cases. Rays tend to be more tropical and subtropical, warmer waters. Skates tend to be either more temperate or subpolar or deeper, colder water species. But also biologically, Most ray species have actually live births. So the babies will grow inside of the mother and then be born directly as fully formed little rays and come out that way. Whereas skate species will actually produce an egg case around the embryo inside the mother. And that egg case, sometimes called mermaid purses, will be laid on the bottom of the ocean and the embryo will continue developing within the egg case and then emerge from the egg case fully formed. So other than that, the the rest of physiology anatomy is is very similar. Most of the time, skates tend to be ecologically more associated with the bottom, whereas there's a whole set of ray species that are much more pelagic and swim in the open ocean rather than, than being associated with the bottom.
0: Yeah. And I was noticing on the coloring of the big skate that we're talking about today, they have that really kind of beautiful modeling. It kind of reminds me of a halibut in terms of, you know, they look like the bottom of the seafloor on the top of their body because they're on the bottom. And then the underside is this really kind of cool light color. And they actually have a kind of a neat little, it looks like a face under there with their mouth. I guess that leads into just maybe describing what this specific species looks like for us.
2: So big skates have this kind of like grayish, bluish, background color on the top, but then it's modeled with these little white spots all over. And then they have two big round spots on each, what are called wings or the pectoral fins on the upper side. And actually the scientific name for the species is Bering Raja is the genus. And then binoculata is the species and binoculata means two eyes. And those refer to the two big circles that are on one on each of the two wings. Other skate species will have kind of similar patterning with like these kind of like circles on the dorsal side of the wings. But they'll be much smaller and darker, whereas these are really two big circles that are really clear. And and, um, so you can identify them fairly easily that way. The underside, as you you mentioned, is pretty one color. It's just kind of a light grayish white. But yeah, they're really good. All skate species are really good. A lot of race species are really good. Just blending in with, with the ground. They've got kind of like a dark brown, gray color overall, because that's just kind of the most time the the color of the sediment.
1: So, you, you mentioned the specific epithet there, and I'm actually a little interested in the genus bearing Raja. As I understand it, these rays were actually just reclassified out of the typical Raja fairly recently, like a decade ago. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about why this new genus was sort of created.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and it just kind of goes to taxonomy of sharks and rays and skates in general. They're always kind of being reclassified in different ways. The best of our knowledge right now, big skates are one of a few species in this relatively new genus called Bering Raja. They used to all be within this genus Raja, which was slightly larger in terms of the number of species. And then in 2012, a paper came out talking actually about those egg cases, about the mermaid purses. And they were the first one kind of looking at, at both the, the, the shape of these egg cases, as well as how many embryos are in them. And they found two species of Raja uh, skates, this one binoculata, as well as another one in the North Pacific called pulchra, that actually had more than one embryo in the egg case. And so based on mostly that, they decided to put it into a new genus called Bearing Raja. And again, this is based on genetic evidence and that might change and not everybody agrees with it, but at this point there might be up to six species in this Varying Raja genus, all from the North Pacific. But the other four only have one embryo, usually only have one embryo per egg case. Um, so there's still something about these two species that are that is quite unique, which is that they they have multiple embryos in, in an egg case.
0: And it's a big egg case. I mean, we're talking like a mermaid suitcase here.
2: <laughs> That's right, yeah, exactly. Carry on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty crazy. And it's hard without kind of seeing a pictures to, to get an idea. But something like a long nose skate, which is in the same areas of the world in, in the North Pacific and Alaska, and is one of these raja species in the genus raja. You know, their eye cases are maybe four or five inches long, close to maybe to four inches long, and they kind of have this like nice typical dome shape on the top. And then when we're talking about a big skate, we're talking about an egg case that's more on the order of like eight to ten inches long, and they have these really weird ridges, and they're really kind of bulky and bulgy. Clearly, more things can be put in there. And big skates, again, there's variability, it's not always the same number, but it's very often, around three, four, five embryos, and we found up to seven and eight embryos into some of these these big skate egg cases. Wow!
0: And you can kind of find these on the beach sometimes. I was looking online, I noticed a lot of like beach pictures. Where are they laying these cases, and are they attached somewhere normally, or just kind of what's the story on how that all works?
2: Also, a great question. Some of this we know, some of this we don't know. One of the big unknowns is when they lay them. Is there like a season? Or do they just kind of lay them throughout the year as they made and and they get produced? We're not sure of that. We have found large aggregations of egg cases. And again, the question is, did they all lay them there? Or is it just that they lay them somewhere and then the currents kind of all bring them into one spot? that's a bit of an unknown. But if you look at egg cases in general for skates, they'll almost always have some amount of horns on either end. So these little kind of projections that curl one way or the other, some of them are really long. And the thought is that in some cases, they might be laying these egg cases around like kelp or other features on the bottom. And those horns might like hook into things and therefore stay where they were laid. Skate reproduction is not something we've observed very much in the wild. We have observed it sometimes in aquaria, but not in the wild. And so we don't actually know how it happens in a practical sense. So they lay them down. They're going to stay kind of in the area or be pushed by currents, but they'll probably be weighted enough by the the embryos inside to stay somewhat on the bottom, even if they get pushed around. But once the egg cases hatches, or basically the, the little embryo inside makes its way out of the egg case... Then they get quite light and then they can really be pushed around. And usually, I don't know, actually usually, but a lot of times they'll, they'll be pushed up onto the shore and then they'll dry out in the sun and then sometimes go all the way up to the top of the rack line uh, so people can find them. And they're really cool. They kind of look like dried kelp. So sometimes it is easy to miss them. But yeah, they're pretty fun to find. Did we mention
1: the the spine on the tails of most rays?
2: No, that's a great point. Yeah, th- thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah, no, I didn't mention that. And part of it's because not all rays have a spine, but when we think about things that have a spine and especially it's in the family of of rays that are called stingrays as, you know, <laughs> as you would you would expect. Yes, they have at the base of their tail, um so closer to the body, they'll usually have a spine these stingrays and that's a lot of the ray species. These are really long. They're barbed. They're very sharp. They're obviously the defense mechanism. And they're also coated in this kind of like protein membrane that's very irritating. And so it can be very painful to be um, stung by them. They have good flexibility with them. And so if like, for example, on a stingray shallow, if you're walking and you step on one, they actually are able to bend their tail and get the top of your foot with that stinger as, as a defense mechanism. That's only in ray species. And that's only some ray species that have that skates don't have that. They don't have anything that's would be considered poisonous or irritating. What they have as a defense is their back is covered, not completely, but especially down the mid row and into the tail with what are called thorns. And so these are not very long. They're much shorter. They're more of like a triangle shape. They're quite small, but they are very, very sharp. And so if you are handling them, be careful on the, especially on the top, it's very, very rough. And in some places, extremely sharp. And so people do get their hands you know fairly well cut if you kind of just grab onto their tail and hold on and try to like manipulate them that way because they'll thrash around a bit and, and it can cut up your hand. I've had many gloves I'd have to throw away because they're totally cut up by these thorns, but they're not poisonous. So so it'll damage your skin it, it'll it'll hurt, but it, it's not gonna it shouldn't kind of create a, an infection or, or anything like that. Um, as long as you as you clean it out after you get cut. But the interesting thing uh, talking about different species is that that's one way that we identify species is by the patterning of where these thorns are and aren't. And so some of them will have it all the way down the midline. Some will have interruptions. Some will have them behind the eyes and others not. And the number of them and and all that, that's an identification tool that we use. And then they won't have them at all on the underside. So the underside will be completely pretty close to smooth, still a little bit sandpapery feeling, but no thorns on the the underside of of any skate.
1: So I want to take a step back again, since this is the first kind of flat shark that we've had on this show to may talk a little bit at, more at a higher level about their physiology and how that works in with their e- ecology. There's kind of this misnomer out there that a lot of the sharks and stuff have to keep moving or else they'll die. But then you see things like the spiracles and whatnot on this. So if you could talk about that, I'd appreciate it.
2: So, Yes. Some sharks and the ones that most come to mind when people think of the word shark are what's called obligate ram ventilators. And that means that in order for them to pass water over their gills, which is how they extract oxygens out of the water is through their gills, which all fish have, which are extremely, extremely thin membranes with lots of blood flow through them. And just by osmosis, they get oxygen pulled out of the water into their blood. So in order for water to be push through kind of new fresh water to pass by those gills in a lot of the kind of well-known shark species, they have to move forward through the water. They don't have a way for their mouths to basically suck in water and push it across their gills. So those are called obligate ram ventilators, uh, white sharks, blue sharks, you know, those kinds of kind of high open ocean, fast moving, cruising species. They need to have water go over their gills by moving through the water with their mouths open. That's why a lot of them can actually drown or suffocate when they're caught in nets. It's because there's no way for them to, to have new fresh water with fresh oxygen going across their gills. That's actually a fairly small percentage of sharks overall. There's a lot of shark species that we don't think of right away when we think about sharks that live on the bottom, that can stop swimming for long periods of time, and they have an active way of pushing water across their gills. But all skates, they can stay for a long time on the bottom without moving and actively push water across their gills. Now, here's a problem. If you're sucking water in through your mouth and passing over their gills, What happens when your mouth is underneath your body and you're sitting on sand? If that was the only way for you to get water across your gills, you would be sucking in a lot of sand as well. And that would clog up the gills. And actually that's another way that some of these species can die is if they have damage to their gills or just things obstructing their gills and not allowing that exchange of oxygen. So they have what are called spiracles. They're usually placed somewhere right behind the eyes sometimes people might mistake the spiracles for eyes but actually if you look at it closely it's actually a hole that has this muscle that kind of opens and closes the hole and basically what they do is they open it suck in water and then close it and then push the water then through their gills and then you'll see little sometimes if you look at it closely one that's like sitting at the bottom of a tank or something you'll see right at the edge of their head uh, kind of the top of their fins you'll see kind of sand kind of moving a little bit that's where the water is being pushed through the gills underneath the skate and then kind of makes its way uh, to the side of the skate.
0: It does kind of look like a little face under there, right? So you have the mouth and then there's the two holes, right? I mean, it looks like a face when you look at it, but the eyes are actually on top.
2: Right. The eyes are on top. Yeah. Those, those two holes that make it look like eyes in the bottom, those are actually the nostrils. The gills will actually be just like a, a shark. When you look at a shark from the side, you'll see those slits. They have little slits underneath as well. So, yeah, so that's how they breathe. That's how all skates breathe. And that allows them to keep breathing even when they're laying on the bottom on mud or sand for long periods of time.
1: Okay. And so we mentioned the mouth is on the bottom too. What what are they act, trying to feed? And then what, what's their jaw and tooth situation kind of like?
2: Yeah. So they'll eat mostly things that are on the bottom. For a lot of skates, it's invertebrates that are either on or in the sediment, as they get bigger and their mouths get bigger, they'll start eating fish as well. So usually flat fish or any kind of fish that's on on the bottom. And they're not the fastest animals. They can kind of get spooked and move fairly fast on short distances, but a lot of that propulsion is with their pectoral fins and they have to kind of fly through the air as opposed to having a big tail with a big fin on the back that can kind of push really quickly. So In order for them to kind of catch these small things that are moving like fish on the bottom, they actually will create a a vacuum by opening their mouths very quickly. And so they kind of make this like a vacuum that brings the prey item in. That's the same way that they'll also kind of extract clams or anything that's inside the sediment. If they find them, they'll like kind of vacuum them up. And in fact, I call them the Roombas of the ocean for that reason, because they'll kind of go around and kind of clean up. I found dead salmon, like whole salmon in their mouths. And that's, that's not because they chased down a salmon. It's because a salmon fell off a net or something at the bottom. And they were just kind of cleaning up after the fishing boat. And if you look at a jaws, I actually have some of my walls of skates. They'll look very, very similar to what you think of when you think of a, of a shark jaw. The difference mostly is in the teeth and a lot of skate species, instead of having teeth, each tooth essentially, if you imagine flattening it into a plate, with a tiny little barb that where the tip of the tooth would be, but that's usually pointed backwards, it's really like a whole bunch of like crushing plates. And that's because they'll use those a lot of times to crush the shells of crabs, of clams. And then as they get bigger, some species will have a little bit more of a point pointing backwards. And that's when they catch a fish that's trying to wriggle out. They still have something that kind of can hold on to that.
0: What do we know about their movement? Like how much movement are these guys undertaken over the course of maybe a year or their whole lives? Are they moving a lot or are they kind of staying in one spot?
2: We don't know for a lot of species. We have tagged and I've tagged big skates specifically, but the scientific community has tagged, you know, a few dozen species of skates. And in all cases, they basically, they kind of do what you think most of the time, which is just stay at the bottom and kind of not move a whole lot but they are capable of long movement. So I had one individual of big skates that I tagged that probably moved somewhere around 2000 kilometers and almost like a migratory movement over a year. They, they started in Prince William Sound and they went all the way out towards the end of the Seward peninsula. So towards the Aleutian Islands and then seemed to turn around and gone back. And then the, the tag popped up somewhere around Kodiak. So, so they made kind of a, a, a back and forth movement. And then other, other ones that I tagged moved like a hundred kilometers in the span of six months. So, you know, if they have a reason to move, they can. They're not gonna be moving hundreds of kilometers a day or anything like that. But over the course of a year, if there's a reason for them to move somewhere, they they are capable of long movements.
1: All right, you know, when I go to my local grocery store, I don't see any skate wings in the seafood department. But from what I understand that among skates that are caught in commercial fisheries, the, the big skate is a major kind of component of that. So I'm wondering how often are these fish caught in commercial fisheries? And then how are people preparing them? Because it seems like people are buying them.
2: This really depends on where you are. So skates in general, like as like a group of animals are actually they're kind of found all over the world. And there's really big populations in the Atlantic and uh, across Western Europe. And so in Europe, there's actually a a much higher prevalence of people buying them as like a normal part of the seafood that they consume. Um, Same thing for Asia as well. Asia has, has a long history of consuming skates. In the US, we really don't have that. If you go to restaurants in like Boston, New York, especially kind of higher end and French restaurants, they will have sometimes skates on the menu. And what that is really is what I mentioned before, the wings or the pectoral fins, those kind of big triangular things on either side of them. And it does produce a kind of a nice whitefish type filet. It's got a nice, you know, slightly sweet flavor, fairly large uh, muscle fibers. And so it it can be a fairly desirable species. And and like I said, in a lot of European countries, it's, it's a bit of a mainstay, especially kind of Northern Europe, France, the UK. In the UK actually... Funnily enough, they used to make fish and ships mostly with cod, and then during the World War, the Second World War, the fishing boats couldn't go too far offshore because of German U-boats, and so they would stay mostly inshore, and they were catching a lot more skates, and so they started making fish and ships with skates, and after the war ended, they actually kept doing it because people did kept liking doing that. So, so now if you go to the UK and fish and chips, there's, there's a chance that it'll be a skate or, or, or something else like that, like a dogfish, which are small sharks. And then sometimes it'll be cod or another type of whitefish. And then in Asia, you know, I've never been to Korea myself, but I heard that they had whole stores dedicated just to skate products. So they'll dry them, they'll powder them, they'll have them fresh, they'll have them frozen, but it's a big food item there. So it's really the U.S. that just hasn't gotten into that habit of having skate as part of, of our diet. You do have to skin them. They have really tough, hard skin, and, and that's a, a bit of a processing thing. But once you get the skin off, then you can you know pan fry it, bake it, uh, even grill it, and, uh, and, and they're quite good.
0: We have some jokes coming in from the studio. If you buy them frozen, is that ice skating?
2: <laughs> that's really good.
0: If you hang them all up in a, in a row, is that inline skating? Thanks to Charlotte. And, yeah, <laughs> hey.
1: And if you go vegetarian, I tell you, that's a big miss skate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Big skate anagram there.
0: We've actually caught we've actually caught one of these when we've been fishing for halibut. Yeah. Um yeah, they're super fun. They kind of come up like a, a door almost. They're so We've eaten one of them. It was, yeah, like you said, very good. Um, I don't think we'll probably make a a huge habit of it because it seems like, yeah, you don't get a, a ton of meat off of those wings from what I could tell. But yeah, it was quite tasty and sauteed them in butter and very tasty.
2: Yeah, no, they are. They're not fun to catch because they don't fight at all. It's like bringing up a kite. It's just like a big like resistance in the water. And so you're just kind of pulling, especially if you're deep down, you're pulling for a long time and it's not fighting at all. But once they get pretty big, that thickness actually grows really quickly. And so you can get real, I mean, big skates get, because of the name, they get really big, you know, they're the biggest skate here that we have in the Pacific. They're not quite as big as like barn door skates, which are literally called barn door skates for a reason in the Atlantic, but they are quite big. They can be up to six feet in length. They can weigh upwards of 200 pounds. And when you get to, you know, big ones that are, you know, a couple feet, Long, that meat will be a couple inches, three inches thick, and you can get a lot of meat off of them. But yeah, especially younger ones and smaller ones, they'll have quite thin wings, and and you won't get quite as much meat off of them. The great thing about them too is if you ever do catch them, especially if they haven't swallowed the hook, they're really hardy species, and they'll go right back down, and they'll probably stay at the bottom for a few hours to recover, but then they'll be totally fine.
0: Yeah, it's a real treat to see them come up. They're just a, they're they're cool. It's a really yeah, they're cool pretty thing to catch. Yeah. So if you, if you catch one of these fish, you have it on the end of your line, you bring it up to the surface. Do you have any handling tips or techniques? If you don't plan to keep it, what are some good ways to like handle this fish, especially if it's six feet across and weighs a hundred, 150 pounds or something like that?
2: That's a really important question. Thanks for asking, because it's it's a message that we try to put out there. I mean, the goal should be to release it alive in, a, in as best of condition as, as possible for anybody. And this really applies for any shark species and really any fish species. But sharks, especially because they're so dense and they have this cartilaginous skeleton, just realize that they're not meant to live out of the water. Their whole physiology is, so if you pick them up and especially if people, you know, a lot of times people pick them up or used to pick them up by their tails, you'll hear pops and that's like their spinal column kind of popping. It's really not great. And so the least amount you can handle them and especially the least amount you can take them out of the water, the, the better. And especially when you're talking about something as big as a big skate, one of the larger shark species, or even halibut, if you're not planning on keeping it, Trying to bring it on, on board is one, not great for the fish, two, it's, it could be dangerous for you because they can flop around and they're they're really heavy and they can can fall on you or, or slap you in the face or something. So really, if you can keep them in the water off the boat and just work kind of over the side of the boat to release them, that'd be the best. The really interesting thing, a technique, you know, a, a kind of a trick of evolution that we use a lot when we tag them, skates and sharks, is that if you turn them upside down, they actually fall into what's called tonic immobility. It's kind of like a torpor state where they retain muscle rigidity, but they almost kind of fall asleep or fall into a trance. Skates don't fight much anyways, but they'll be even calmer and you'll have the mouth turned towards you if you turn them upside down. So keep them over the side of the boat, keep them in the water, obviously take a picture if you want, you know, from above into the water with your face in it, which that's always fun. But if you do that, you'll really minimize the damage to them and and the risk to you. And then just turn them over once you're ready to release them so that you have the mouth exposed, they're upside down and take the hook out and then turn them back right side up so that they can, they can kind of come out of that trance and then just kind of let them go. And they may just kind of slowly drift away without swimming. That's, probably pretty typical of what they do. In my experience, their response to any kind of stress is just don't move. Or, you know, if it's a particularly lively one, once you turn it over and let it go, it may actually beat its wings a couple of times and and fly off.
0: In terms of eating them, are there any things to be aware of with like mercury levels? Or I know you've mentioned in the past, the livers can get big. And I don't know if those are edible too, but just talking a little bit more about those things.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I actually studied that a little bit, actually, at the kind of a request of, of the fishing industry. They, were, they had those, those same questions and they wanted to know. And basically, mercury on, on most fish species are, are the, the levels that are in the in the individual is kind of based on two things. One is how high up on the food chain they, they eat. So whether they're top predators or they'll eat low trophic levels. And the other component is how old they are. So the older they are and the higher on the food chain they eat, usually that's more likely to accumulate a lot of mercury. So skates can actually live quite long, um, not quite as long as sharks, a lot of shark species, but longer than like halibut or, or things like that. But they don't feed quite as high up on the food chain. And so species like long skates, which are a little bit more long-lived actually than, than big skates, even though they're smaller and feed slightly higher on the food chain, they can accumulate levels of mercury about similar to halibut is what I found. So you know, nothing to be kind of really super worried about. Big skates tend to not be quite as high on the food chain and they'll usually be a little bit younger. So the mercury levels I found in in their muscles I'm talking right now can be fairly low and not really a, a concern. The liver is really interesting because just like all shark and skates and ray species that don't have a swim bladder. They get a lot of their buoyancy from having a very big fatty liver, which is lighter than water and so helps them float. So, skates have really big livers, very oily, and there's actually potential in there for getting a lot of omega 3, omega 6s. I don't know anybody who eats livers directly out of skates, but there is a potential, and and people around the world have tried making supplements out of livers. But there wasn't any red flags that I found in, in my research about what accumulates in the liver.
0: How long are these guys living? So the big skates and also the long nose skates?
2: Again, you know, a little bit hard to tell for wild populations, but it's somewhere on the order of 20, 30, maybe 40 years. But that's kind of the, the longevity of, of big and long nose skates, probably a little bit less for big skates. And then the other important component is age and maturity. So how long it takes to them to get to an age that they reproduce at first, which is very important for understanding population dynamics and susceptibility to being overfished. And that age at maturity is probably somewhere around the five, six years for big skates and like 10, 11 years for long nose skates.
0: And how are they doing? Are these populations doing pretty well here in Alaska and beyond as you go South?
2: So I, I did the last IUCN kind of um, red list assessment. So to understand their conservation status for big skates in 2014, And I I don't think it's changed since then, but it's a least concern. It's, you know, it's not a concern for overfishing. Their life strategy is to just make it to adulthood and live there for a long time and produce few but well-developed embryos that will kind of have a relatively high juvenile survivability. So, and because we haven't had a long and really intense history of fishing, they're doing quite well the danger is always if all of a sudden the prices like shoot to the roof and everybody wants to catch skate, that's when we can quickly get into problems and danger area, but that's not happening. And I don't think anybody really expects that to happen anytime soon. So just in general, they're doing fairly well.
0: So last question for me, and maybe it ties into what drew you to this fish, but why should people care about this fish?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it was just, it's a less well-known species. And I'm just drawn to that in general, like understanding things that are not well-known people do encounter them fairly frequently. They are very pretty as, as we mentioned, but really it's just, it's a conservation concern for me. It's they're just like many other species. They're easy to overfish. They can, you know, get into their populations can get into trouble very quickly. If things aren't going well for them, if either it's a a fishing problem or, or a habitat destruction problem, so, you know, it, it was all kind of those both you know, interest in the fish itself, interest in the conservation, and just, uh, you know, whether or not we can, my, my page was on whether or not we can make a sustainable fishery for skates in Alaska. And the bottom line is we can't unless we have really low kind of catch limits, but it, it's good to keep an eye on it to make sure that we don't kind of overfish them. And and right now, state and federal management has done quite well on, on these skates given the fact that we know not as much as we do for a lot of other species that are fish so it's still fairly data limited but but they're doing a good job making sure that we don't overfish them
0: that's awesome cool well thomas thanks for joining us today and yeah sure this was great talking to you
2: yeah yeah thanks thanks a lot
0: get out there and enjoy all the fish and yeah check out the the skates that are in your area they're awesome Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.